0: This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life, he who does not have the Son does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God." For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Before we open God's Word together this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask the Lord's guidance on our study. Our Father, we are reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ prayed to you the night before He went to the cross Sanctify them by means of truth. Your word is truth. That we are set apart to your service by means of your word. It is by means of your word that we grow. We are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is your word that is transformative and part of the way in which it is transformative is because it is truth. It conforms our thinking to the reality of how you have created things. Even though we live in a world that is horribly defaced and corrupted because of sin, we know that there is absolute truth, there is absolute reality that we can know but we can only know it as we submit ourselves to the authority of your word that we can come to understand life as it is. The reality of sin and the corruption of sin and how it affects our thinking, our emotions, our every aspect of our being is defaced by sin. And yet, Father, there is a, is your word that promises to transform us into the image of your son. So as we focus upon your word today and think through these important passages and and teachings of scripture that you will enable us to understand them they will answer questions that we have and encourage and challenge us to be even more faithful in our christian life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to continue our study today in Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. We're going to be looking at some other passages as we go through what we have been studying, which is we have moved beyond inheritance in the Old Testament. And what we are looking at today is coming to grips with the understanding that the Bible teaches that there are two different kinds of inheritance. Now when we read these passages as we have over the last 3 or 4 Sundays that talk about the fact that those who practice those who commit uh, certain sins will not inherit the kingdom as I have pointed out there are many of those uh who trans, who understand that and interpret that to mean that they won't be in heaven. And my point on demonstrating this is that despite the fact that 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 is maybe what you think it means or what you have heard people say that it means, that that's not what it is talking about. It is talking about uh, really in the context of each of these passages, it is a challenge to believers to set aside those things that characterized our lives as unbelievers, and to motivate us and to challenge us to live each day in light of our future destiny, to live today in light of eternity. And so that is the focal point here. It is motivational. It is not condemnatory. The sad thing is that because of certain sins that are listed here that are at the forefront of the cultural, uh, cultural war of our nation, there are legalistic Christians and self-righteous Christians and Christians who have misinterpreted the Bible and so they are condemning those who practice these things to as unbelievers, and that they are bound for uh, the lake of fire, which is not what the scriptures teaching. Uh, these people who do that don 't understand grace, and as a result, they just exacerbate the flames, they feed the flames of the uh, of the controversy and make it more difficult for uh, believers who understand grace to communicate the gospel to those who are desperately in need of that which will give them that which they are seeking, which is a life of joy and peace and stability and meaning. And yet without the Bible uh, they will never find those particular things. So when we talk about inheritance. I've pointed out that there is one inheritance that is the same for all. It is the same for every believer. That this is what we uh, that what we are given at the instant of our salvation. It is part of that blessing package. Ephesians one three speaks of that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. In the heavenlies, it is true for every believer, whether you are mature, whether you're immature, whether you are carnal or fleshly or sinful, or whether you are somebody who is devoted to your spiritual life. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5 focuses on this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His abundant mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. So this is a general inheritance true for every single believer. The problem is when we take that meaning and apply that to passages like Ephesians 5, 3 through 4, which has a list of sins And ends by saying that the one who does this has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I pointed out that the kingdom of Christ is a literal kingdom that is in the future. That according to the prophecies in the Old Testament, that when the Jewish Messiah came, that he would do two things... First thing He would do is that He would pay for the sins of the world. He would die as our substitute. He would die for His people, and that through Him, many would be justified, would be declared just. That is what He did at the first coming, at the first advent, when He paid the penalty for sin. But because He was rejected by His own people... Uh, we are told in John chapter 1 that he came to his own people, but his own people received him not. And so they rejected him, and so because of that, the kingdom that he had offered during the first part of his uh, ministry was postponed, It was postponed until he returns a second time when the Jewish people will call upon him, call upon the name of the Lord, then he will return. That takes place at the end of the period we refer to as the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, that seven-year period that comes following the rapture of the church. So this is talking to Christians, to church-age believers to motivate them not to continue in the sins that have been committed in the past because it has consequences. It doesn't have consequences in terms of their eternal destiny, but it has consequences at the judgment seat of Christ. So that's what an inheritance in the kingdom, it is a second type of inheritance. There's the one that is true for everyone at the moment of salvation. All of us get a Resurrection body. There's no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. We are separated from our sin nature, and we will spend eternity uh, with the Lord. But there are differences as well that will take place, and these are emphasized as I pointed out in the other two passages, First Corinthians six nine through ten, and Galatians five nineteen through twenty one where there are these other similar lists of sins ending with the fact that those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what we're going to do today is look at the 1 Corinthians 6 passage eventually and under because that 's the most difficult i 'm not going to spend time with galatians five nineteen to twenty one because once we understand what 1 corinthians six nine through ten is doing, then that helps us understand the ephesians five passage as well as the galatians five nineteen to twenty one so last time we started with what the bible teaches about the inheriting the kingdom, so as i 've said in review. The Ephesians speaks of two kinds of inheritance. The first is eternal. It is guaranteed by the sealing by the Holy Spirit for all believers equally. It includes at the very least a resurrection body, life without end, in the millennial kingdom and eternity with God. This is seen in the passage Ephesians one 13 through 13-14 In him you also trusted after you. The you refers to you Gentile believers in Ephesus. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So the Holy Spirit of promise for every believer guarantees our inheritance. But there's a second kind which is a special reward inheritance to those who grow spiritually in their faithfulness, obedience, and service. You have two key passages, Ephesians 2, 8-10 tells us that we are saved not on the basis of works. It's a gift of God. But then Colossians 3.24 talks about rewards and says that we know that from the Lord we will receive the reward of our inheritance. A gift is a gift. A reward is something that is that is earned. So there's that distinction. You get rewards on the basis of performance. I've used the analogy of an athlete that is hired by a team and they're given a contract. You're you're guaranteed a certain minimum Uh, salary, that no matter how they perform, they will earn that much money. But then they're given an incentive clause that if they do well, if they perform well, then they will get additional bonuses. And that's what rewards are. They are those additional bonuses. Third, we looked last time at the judgment seat of Christ, that this is for church-age believers only. This is not a judgment seat for unbelievers. It is not a judgment seat for Old Testament saints. It is for church age believers only, and it takes place immediately following the rapture of the church. So what will transpire at the end of the church age is that there will be a the the rapture that will happen in the uh, blink of an eye, The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together uh, with them to meet the Lord in the air. Immediately following that, it will be the judgment seat of Christ. Now that takes place in heaven, which is a timeless environment. People always say, well, that's going to take a lot of time to to judge every believer. When we're in heaven, it's going to take like another blink of an eye and it will be uh it will go by so fast but our key passage here is 2 Corinthians 5:10 for we must we being believers must all appear before the judgment seat the greek word is bima, the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body see you're already saved because you're there This doesn't have to do with your eternal destiny. It has to do with uh, the quality of that eternal destiny and our roles and responsibilities in heaven. For all of us it will be a place of perfection and great joy. But there will be some differences in roles and responsibilities. So the timeline is that at the end of the church age, there's the rapture of the church immediately followed by the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. This then is the seven-year tribulation followed by the millennial kingdom And then there is the second resurrection, which is all of the unsaved who will appear before God at the great white throne judgment. And they are evaluated on the basis of their works. Or do their works measure up to the righteousness of God? That's the, that's the, that's the standard. If their righteousness isn't as good as God's righteousness, then they are not allowed into God's heaven. That is why Scripture says regarding Jesus Christ that he who knew no sin was made sin for us on our behalf in order that the righteousness of God might be found in us. We're saved because we possess the righteousness of God. And then we go into the eternal state, and those who have rejected God and His free offer of righteousness will have eternal condemnation. 1 Peter 1.17 is a passage we read from uh, Second Peter already regarding our eternal, undefiled, uncorruptible inheritance. And now we have another kind, where we will be evaluated according to our work. And so the command there is to conduct ourselves, that is to live our lives a certain way. These are motivational passages for believers that there will be an accountability in the future that is based, of course, on God's grace. And sin is not the issue. The issue is how well we served the Lord and grew to spiritual maturity. Fourth point we saw was that there, for some there will be rewards, but for others there will be a loss of the rewards. This is a very clear passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is that at the judgment seat of Christ, we're evaluated, and there will be those who receive rewards, and then there will be some that that just have nothing because they never grew spiritually, they never served the Lord, they have uh, nothing other than the righteousness of Christ, but they are saved. So 1 Corinthians 3.11 And 12 builds on this analogy of an edifice that is constructed, the edifice of our lives. The foundation is Jesus Christ, verse 11. Paul says, if anyone builds on that foundation, that foundation of the gospel, you are saved. You are, you possess righteousness of Christ. We build on it with valuable stones, gold, silver, precious stones that will not be destroyed and then also with some things that will be easily destroyed, wood, hay, or straw. We all build on that. And then the image is that uh, we're going to build our lives, and then uh, a fire is going to be applied to this, and that which has no value will be destroyed or burned up. The fire is not the lake of fire or anything like that. This is just an analogy. So that that which survives is only those things which are imperishable, the gold, silver, and precious stones. And so at the... I, well, there we go. Uh, if anyone has built on it, verse 14, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. So the reward is based on the gold, silver, precious stones what is there what has eternal value what is produced in our lives not by ourselves but by our by the holy spirit because we have spent time walking by the holy spirit verse 15 says if anyone's work is burned he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved so the potential rewards that they would receive are not distributed yet the those who do not have anything will still have their salvation. They will be saved, yet as through fire. So the conclusion from this is there's going to be two categories of believers that come out of the judgment seat of Christ. And we need to constantly ask ourselves, which group are we going to be in? Now, many, we can't really tell this. Some people get really self-focused on this. And uh, yet there's no way we can tell. We, we don't know uh, how much we walk by the Spirit, how much we don't, but we should constantly strive uh, keeping close accounts of our sins by confessing and also being in God's Word, studying God's Word, applying God's Word, and growing spiritually. So to understand this concept of inheritance and rewards, we went back last time to the Old Testament, and saw that the central meaning of the word inheritance wasn't that someone died and left you something, but it's the central idea of the possession of our ownership of property. And that's the idea there, that when God promised Abraham a possession in the land, that that didn't mean that God would die and leave that to him in his will. It meant just that he is given this gift of property. Genesis fifteen seven and 8, God speaking to Abram said, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it, to possess it. Now Abraham never possessed it in his lifetime. Now we covered this and we'll be covering it some more in the tuesday night bible study from the interlocked series on the abrahamic covenant abraham never possessed or owned any land of that which god promised him in the old testament other than the cave of machpelah in hebron which he purchased for his grave and for the grave of his wife sarah who predeceased him So Abram asked this question, well, Lord, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So the answer is the Abrahamic covenant. The context explains in Genesis 15, the context that God had promised descendants that they would come from his own body. Abraham had a hard time believing that. So he was always trying to come up with a way to help God provide him with an heir. Eventually, after uh, about 20 years from the promise, uh, Sarah who's 90, Abraham's 100, and God rejuvenates her reproductive system. I heard a obstetrician one time go through a a, a very long list of all of the physiological changes that would have had to have taken place in Sarah's body for her to be able to um, become pregnant, conceive, and to um, not only give birth but afterwards uh, to nourish the infant. All of these different physiological, biological systems would have had to have been regenerated. It's an incredible miracle. And God was telling Abram to trust him, that the heir would come from Abram's own body. Later he says it will come from you and Sarah. Uh, he promised the number of descendants would be innumerable and that the promise would be guaranteed by the character of God. When he made the covenant uh, he caused a deep sleep to fall upon Abram and the sacrifices had been laid out split in half and God uh, depicted himself as a torch moved between the halves of the sacrifices to indicate that he alone was guaranteeing this covenant. Now that's important because you'll run into people who say that well because the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah that they've the Abrahamic covenant's no longer in effect. And I challenged people, I said, really? What you should do is go through there 13 times in Genesis at least where the Abrahamic covenant is reiterated to Abram, to his son Isaac, to uh, Jacob, and then to uh, Joseph. Uh, where does it say that that it's conditional in every place it's eternal it's eternal it's everlasting there's no end to the abrahamic covenant it is reiterated numerous times through the remainder of the hebrew scriptures never with a condition it is an eternal uh, eternal covenant guaranteed by by god so he's the part of it is the land promise genesis 1518 i used this map last time Gaza was part of it, part of the original um, land promise which was indeed reaffirmed with Joshua. Six, we saw that in the Old Testament there are two types of inheritance. First the idea of an inheritance that is every believer's relationship to God. In the Old Testament it emphasized they were God's possession. They were heirs of God. Uh, Deuteronomy 18.2 uh, secondly, also in Deuteronomy, the idea of inheritance included property possession, but not everyone would have a this kind of inheritance. so there was a property possession for all, and there were some caveats so that not all enjoyed that uh, inheritance, even though they lived in the land and Part of this was the tribe of Levi that would set apart. And so I pointed out in the Septuagint that they would have no part. This is the Greek word meris as it's translated into the Septuagint. The rabbis translated it. We will come back and look at the significance of that word when we get into the New Testament. But it shows us that the New Testament ideas were all based on this Old Testament understanding. So we concluded... There's a general inheritance of a relationship to God unrelated to the possession of the land promised to Israel. Two categories of inheritance. Some would be in the land with no possession in the land, and then others would be in the land and have ownership. The seventh thing I pointed out was that there's the same distinction in the New Testament. So we have this general inheritance of 1 Peter 1, 4, and 5. And then we come to the pa- one of the key passages we're looking at this morning is in Romans eight seventeen. Now, a lot of you have heard me go through this. There's a tendency for you to ...put your brain in neutral because you say, oh, I've heard this taught 15 times, I know what he's going to say. No, you don't. Every time I go back, go back through this, I always read new material and study new material, and so there are some new aspects here, but uh, we all know that there's an issue here with the commas and punctuation, and so for those who've never heard this before, I'm going to review that a little bit because that's the easy part the more difficult parts, which i 'm not sure i've taught before, uh, probably have uh, is a little is based on Greek grammar, so that gets a little more technical, but the first part's easier for us to understand. so when we look at Romans eight seventeen here, we have a couple of important words to look at. Uh, the words that we should look at are the word if if children. And then we have a second if later on, if indeed we suffer with them. They're not the same word. Uh, so we will talk about that. And so what Paul is saying in this, in this period is talking about as believers, we all have been adopted by God. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And he says, and if children... And it's a first-class condition in the Greek. In the Greek, a first-class condition, three-way, actually there's about four or five ways, but in the New Testament there are only three ways that these conditions are expressed. And it's very clear objectively from the grammar. And so it uses the expression that would indicate if children with the assumption that we are children, that his readers are saved, that they are children, they have been adopted by God. And so on the assumption that you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it goes on to say then heirs. Notice there is an M dash following that, setting apart the phrase heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ followed by a comma. And then we have another phrase, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now that's the New King James translation. Now, just a reminder, in the original Greek, one of these days I'm going to do this. In the original gr- Greek, there's not only no spaces between words, there's no punctuation, there's no capitalization. So, if you know the language, you can figure it out. If I were to do this and write the, all that out and run it all together in English, you would have no trouble seeing the word di- divisions and understanding the grammar because you know the language. And so that was true in, in Greek as well. But the trouble is that we deal with is how do we punctuate this? The way it is offset in the New King James, is there's no comma after God, so it appears that the phrase heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ are referring to the same group of people, especially since there is a comma that follows Christ. Then you have a conditional clause that is not a first class condition, it is a unique word that is translated if here if indeed we suffer with them what that appears to mean which is the way john calvin took it and john calvin's interpretation of this verse has influenced numerous commentators down through the centuries and he had a choice to make when he was translating the if. And so you end up with, with, he had a contradiction. So ends up when you trace this out, you have some people who go with contradiction, try to, try to solve it with option A or option B. I'm not going to get into all of that. But the bottom line is the same thing. You have this clause that makes suffering with him the necessary condition for being an heir of God, in other words, by taking it that way, it, it, you are not saved by faith alone in Christ alone. you are saved by faith plus suffering with Christ, whatever that may mean, and so this is a problem that makes works the part of, the, a part of your salvation, the work of suffering with him. Now, if you look at the verse below, this is how the King James translated it. And if children, then heirs. Notice there's a semicolon there. That's that's a hard stop. Not as hard as a period, but it's a hard stop. And then heirs of God, comma, and joint heirs with Christ. Semicolon. Now here by putting a comma after heirs of God there's a recognition that this is talking about two different things, right? But by putting a semicolon after joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him would apply to both still. See, that relates to that contradiction that was inherent in the way Calvin handled it. So this is one way to do it. But you still, in in either way, you end up making suffering with Christ a condition for genuine salvation. So here's a picture of the original uh, King James and how it's translated. And you have a colon at the end of um, joint heirs with Christ, which separates it. Uh, from the conditional clause. You have heir, comma after if then heirs, heirs of God, comma, joint heirs with Christ, colon. But that still makes the if clause relate to both heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ. So commas are important. I always like to go out and few, find a few cartoons because you have to learn how to properly use commas. And so in the first cartoon here, we have a lady who says, help, a thief. So this thief is running off with her purse. Then the police show up, and she's thankful, yay. In the third panel, lower left, the cop is not arresting the thief. And she's saying, why are you arresting him? He says, commas, lady, Without the comma, it's saying, help a thief. Not help. A thief. Commas are important. On the sign on the left, without commas, no punctuation, it says, attention, toilet is only for disabled elderly pregnant children. (laughs) Commas are important. In the right, what a difference a comma makes. I like cooking, my family, and my dogs, three things. Without the commas, it's like I like cooking my family and my dogs. (laughs) Use commas, don't be a psycho. Johnny said the teacher was stupid. How would you punctuate that? Well, one option is Johnny said the teacher was stupid. The other option is Johnny said, comma, The teacher was stupid. Commas are important, but there's no commas in the Greek. So you have to come to an understanding of it based on the grammatical structure, but also on your understanding of inheritance. Now, where would these recipients of Romans get an understanding of inheritance? Because they had been taught this. The Jews that were among this understood that there were two categories of inheritance. And so they would properly understand it. They were taught well on the gospel, so they knew that we weren't saved by suffering with Christ. So they would understand that these are two different categories of inheritance. So we would translate it. Uh, this uh, No, this is the New American Standard. It makes the same error. If children, comma, heirs also, comma, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, and then if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And this is, this is a problem. Other translations do the same thing. And by, in whether you separate heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, how you then interpret the rest of it indicates that both are qu- characterized by that by that if clause. So I've used these different uh, translations up here to illustrate this. So what do we have to do? Well, here's the way it's translated in the New King James. Setting apart heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ with a comma, and then the conditional clause would apply to that. But it's missing a very important part of Greek grammar. So I'm going to put the words in here. These are words that are usually not translated. These are words that indicate a, usually a contrast. And but not always. Now this is where you get into it—a very important part of exegesis. Now you all know that I have, there are a lot of pastors and a lot of others that listen and are more technically proficient in grammar. So uh, this is just a higher-level explanation of what you've been taught before. When you get this kind of a phrase, where you're talking about a contrast, sometimes it's not a contrast; it's just a, an ex- further explanation. But I'm going to show you in a minute. In the Apostle Paul, in Romans, he uses this gra- grammatical construction uh, quite a few times, and it always contrasts. It's always contrast, so that's important. And it's called a men de clause because what you will have at the beginning of one phrase is this word men. It's not translated. It's to indicate that there's a contrast that's taking place and then it will be followed at the second clause with the word de. And so it should be translated and if children, comma, on the one hand heirs of God, comma, and on the other hand, the contrast. So it's contrasting these two kinds of inheritance. "...by that men-de-construction. If children, on the one hand, heirs of God, and on the other hand..." Or we could translate it, "...but on the other hand, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together." So this is how this sets up, and it's not just, well, I, you know, that somebody's reading this into it because it fits their theology. That's not how you do exegesis. You have to say, well, how does Paul use this phrase? In some letters he uses it differently. But in Romans he's very consistent, and there's a list on this slide of all of the different places. uh looks like about 12 or 14 different uh places that he uses this men-de-construction and it always indicates a contrast in Romans. So if somebody's going to try to make it mean something else, they have to deal with this. And as I have read through a number of commentaries that by Greek scholars, it's always interesting that you ignore what you don't like. So... You come to this statement, if children on the one hand heirs of God, so that 's this heirship we talked about in the Old Testament, God is their heir, uh, that is what we have when we are all believers have God as their heir, as their uh, possession, and on the other hand, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him now what 's interesting here, this is not not the usual if that you would find which is just the word A-E spelled E-I, but this is a compound word, a pair, E-I-P-E-R, which indicates a condition that is not yet fulfilled. So it's on the other hand, joint heirs, if in the future, if truly you or we suffer with them, and the implication there is that if you read this, it's am I going to be willing to suffer for the gospel? Am I going to be willing to take a stand where I may be rejected? Don't think of suffering as somebody uh, putting you on the rack or somebody shipping you off to Devil's Island in the prison or putting you in solitary confinement or burning you at the stake. It, it can be just simple rejection. Your family just doesn't want to have anything more to do with you. Because because now you're a Christian, or that you're sort of shunned by some people at work, uh, something like that. It can be any level of of uh, discomfort or adversity, because you're taking a stand for the truth of God's word. And today we know that with political correctness and with all of the many different things that people take offense at, that some people, they just know you're a Christian, or will they'd be willing to uh, cut your head off right away. So are you willing to let it be known that you're a believer in Jesus Christ and take a stand for that? And so that's the idea here, is that this is a challenge or encouragement to us to be willing to suffer uh, to whatever degree that God may co- put us in, uh, that we may glorify the Lord Jesus Christ through our testimony. So here's the uh, point. The if indeed translates the Greek word a pair, not the usual conditional word a, and it emphasizes a future possibility dependent on the fulfillment of the condition of suffering with him now that's these are fine points of grammar you don 't get in first year Greek and you don 't get them in second year Greek and you probably don 't get it in third year unless you 're really working through some difficult uh, passages in whatever letters you 're looking at so but this is in something you dig out of the grammars so what we end up seeing here is in Romans eight seventeen that there are two types of errors. Heirs of God describes all believers, and joint heirs with Christ describes those who grow spiritually. Now all of that's necessary to understand the background of what we're seeing in these three passages in in 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5 and Ephesians 5, and that is that those who commit or practice certain sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what we've seen is inheriting has two senses, the general sense that is true for every believer, and the other sense that uh, may disqualify believers from some rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. So that the concept of inheriting the kingdom is understood in these two radically different ways. One is to simply enter the kingdom, and another is to have a share in the privileges and possessions of the kingdom. So we're going to look at First Corinthians six, nine, and ten. This is a verse that that these some of these legalistic, independent Baptists and self righteous uh, Pentecostals and others will browbeat people who have a problem with same sex attraction. And you know you can't be saved if you do these things. And it's just an embarrassment to the cross. They don't understand the Bible. They don't understand grace. And it's really sad. That is not what this passage is saying. But we need to understand what it is saying. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's anyone who is practicing sex outside of marriage, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. Notice those things always seem to go together fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, very clear what it is talking about here, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So the second thing that we see here is that the term inherit the kingdom is used in six passages in the scripture, Matthew 25:34, which is talking about uh, in, a, in a parable related to uh, Gentiles at the, um, uh, at the end of the tribulation. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, 15, 50, Galatians five twenty one Ephesians 5, 5. So these three of these passages are wh- what we're focusing on. So this is the key passage. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Second command, do not be deceived. And then verse 11 says, and such were some of you. Now the way most people read that is it's saying such were some of you. As if he's talking to a group of unbelievers and some of them are believers. That's not what it's saying. So let's take it apart. We have to answer these questions. To whom is Paul writing? What do we know about these Corinthians? Second, who are the unrighteous in verse 9? Verse 9. Oh, what does it mean? Do not be deceived. What does inherit mean, and what does inherit the kingdom mean we 've already addressed that, and such were some of you, and then applying it to ephesians five five and galatians 19, five nineteen to twenty one So to whom is paul writing he 's talking to a group of believers. That's important to understand. Go back to Genesis to to First Corinthians one one. He's talking to these believers, and he's constantly accusing them of all kinds of sins. But they're in Corinth. Corinth is a lot like Houston. It was a port city, had all kinds of people, ethnic groups coming to Corinth, all kinds of uh, idolaters coming, all kinds of idols and other other religions coming, and it's just a A melting pot of immorality. That was the culture of Corinth. About Corinth, we know that it was a Roman colony that was built for military veterans and freedmen. Second, it was a port city that brought sailors, slaves, Greeks, Asians, Egyptians, and Europeans together. It's just a melting pot of of the world. Third, it was a city with a worldwide reputation for evil, immorality, and lasciviousness. It was a proverb. If you were immoral, if you were just all kinds of sexual depravity, you lived like a Corinthian. That was the, that was the idiom. That was, it was proverbial. So they had quite the culture. And Paul is writing to them. And in 1 Corinthians, he he accuses them of many things related to their conduct that is much less than spiritual maturity. They're called fools. They are still practicing incest among them. They are lying, they're arrogant, they're divisive. It's almost like reading a list of the sins in Galatians 5, the works of the flesh. Um, so we see that they're divisive and fractious in 1 Corinthians 1. And 1 Corinthians 1.25 and into chapter 2, they're enthralled by Greek pagan philosophies. Third, they're carnal. They're characterized by jealousy and strife. Fourth, they are said to be self-important. They're impressed with their, who they are in 1 Corinthians 4.8. They are boasting, they're arrogant in one hundred twenty nine, three hundred eighteen and four seven. Uh, they are arrogant in three hundred six, four seven and four hundred in 4.7, They're seventh, they're licentious and morally permissive in chapter five. Eighth, they're sexually immoral in chapter seven. Ninth, they're gluttonous drunkards in chapter eleven. 10th, they are self-absorbed and pagan in their view of the gifts. That's chapters 12 through 14. Now, would you describe these people as righteous or unrighteous? Think about that. So that's a critical sense. So we have to understand that word. What does it mean to be adikos? You're familiar with this. We've talked about it a lot. The Greek word for righteousness, the root is dik dikaio is the word for to make righteous, to impute righteousness, to declare righteous. Dikaiosune is the quality of righteousness. So a is that prefix in Greek that is like the English UN. They're not righteous. And so some say that refers to unbel- always refers to unbelievers, that it's a technical term for unbelievers. Others say it simply means wrongdoers. That's the root of it. At the first verse, which gives us context, a lot of I mean, I made this mistake for years. A lot of us go to that, we read it does any of you, when he has a case, you're take, they would take other believers to court and sue them all the time. Does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? See, the word basically means wrongdoers. But in this context because it's contrasted with saints it would have the idea of unbelievers who were wrongdoers. But is that the core meaning of the word? You can't use verse 1 to interpret verse nine, 8 or 9. Why? Because there's other forms of the word that are used in between changing the meaning. So adikos can mean unjust or unrighteous but that can refer to an unrighteous unbeliever or an unrighteous believer. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, when we read, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Many people say, well, that refers back to the unbeliever here. So they read this as unbeliever. But in Thayer's lexicon, it can refer to unjust, unrighteous, or sinful, or deceitful. It doesn't have an inherent meaning of unbeliever. In uh, Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich, it means unjust, dishonest, or untrustworthy. In Abbott Smith, unjust, unrighteous, or wicked. It doesn't have an inherent meaning of being an unbeliever. So in 1 Corinthians 6, 8, we read, No, you yourselves do wrong. You do. you adikos, yadikeo, You are doing wrong. It is not saying you're an unbeliever. Uh, you yourselves do wrong. The, the um, New American Standard just translates it: "You yourselves wrong." No, there's no "do" there. In, in NASB is a bad translation. It's 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 a wrongdoer. Uh, you do you're wrongdoer, and you cheat. So remember all those sins I listed; they're guilty of already. Now they're cheaters. Okay, they they do they they're wrongdoers. And Now this verse comes right before the verse in question. So the meaning of this word has changed from the context of verse 1 to the context of verse 8. So the phrase in verse 9 is not the same as the wicked are understood as the unbeliever in verse 1. In verse 1 it's an adjective with an article where it refers to a class of people. But in verse 9, it doesn't have the article. The articular construction emphasizes identity. That's verse 1. The absence of the article, that's anarthrous. The anarthrous construction emphasizes character. And because the same word is used twice in 8 and 9, or or, excuse me, the word is used twice, one in verse 1, one in verse 9, It may be justifiable to press the standard grammatical distinction here. If so, then the adikas in verse nine are not the wicked of verse one. That's where it gets, that's just technical grammar and interpretation. So what are we, what's it saying? Look at the context starting in verse seven. Now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong, which is adikeo? Why? It's wrongdoing. It's not unbelief. Okay, why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Verse 8, no, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. You're adikeo. So twice it has this meaning of being a wrongdoer, and then we come to verse 9, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom? See, the context is 7 and 8. They are wrongdoers, and he's telling them, you know if you continue to sin if you continue to be a wrongdoer you won't inherit the kingdom it doesn't have to do with being a believer so he says so he makes his point there now let's look at this verse 11 quickly 1st Corinthians 6:11 says and such were some of you all so the yellow circle is you all now who are the you all in context, it's all believers. And then you have a subset, some. So who are the some? Well, from the context of the letter, most of these Corinthians are cheating, they're liars, they're gluttons, they're drunkards, they're arrogant, they have all kinds of sexual immorality, right? Right? So that yellow circle describes you all are saved, but you're still just filled with sin. You're walking according to your sin nature. But some of you are different, a subset. Some of you have grown and matured. So the sum, the ways you can interpret the phrase, number one, the sum is a smaller group of believers in a larger group of unbelievers. But that would mean that the rest of the epistle is addressing a lot of unbelievers. And it's not. It's addressing them as the saints in Corinth. They're believers. So that's that's how most people take it. You all are just unbelievers, and then they're just a minority of believers. Second way to look at it is that the sum is a smaller group of believers and a larger group of believers. And the larger group of believers are carnal. They're the ones that are identified in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. You're still fleshly. You're still carnal. So 1 Corinthians 6.11 is saying, "...and such were some of you." The some are growing and maturing. The rest of them are still characterized by all the sins that they're accused of in the rest of 1 Corinthians. So in summary... Adikos in verse 9 does not refer to unbelievers. Second, Adikos is linked with the wrongdoing in verses 7 and 8, actually. So the context is addressing believers, not unbelievers. That only believers are heirs of God, and they're all heirs of God. But in verse 9 and 10... Some inheritance is based on human action, their sins. So these believers are in danger of losing rewards. Now that helps us to understand Ephesians 5. When we have that list of sins in Ephesians 5, it's not talking about if you do these things, you're going to lose your salvation. It's saying if you lose these things, you're jeopardizing your future rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. That's the same thing that Paul is saying in Galatians 5. If you practice those who practice these things, it doesn't say those who do these things, it says those who practice these things uh, will not inherit the kingdom because they never live as a believer who is growing and maturing. They're saved, but that's as far as it got. And for others, maybe they were saved and they grew a little bit, but they never got out of diapers. And then they regressed. So that helps us to understand grace. Is Our salvation is not dependent upon what we do. Our salvation is based upon what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And if we trust in him, we become heirs of God. And we will have eternal life. We will be with him in heaven. There will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. The old things have passed away and many, many other things. And we will have great inexpressible joy in our lives. But God gives us an incentive to grow and mature because it could cost at the judgment seat of Christ. And so the challenge for us is are we willing to do what it takes to focus on growing and maturing, not living for today, the model should be Moses. He was willing to give up the pleasures of Egypt to suffer with his people. That's the pattern. Are we willing to focus on what God has for us? Or are we willing to just focus on the pleasures of our culture? with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of your grace, but also reminded of that there is a reason that we are saved, that we have been bought with a price. We have responsibilities as believers, as those who are in your family of God. We are to walk worthy of this new calling. Father, we know that there are some who may be listening here. Maybe they are online. Maybe they are listening at some future date. That our salvation is based on only one thing, faith in Christ. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Uh, John 3.18 says that those who uh, believe are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And believing in Jesus Christ as our Savior died for our sins is the only condition for eternal life. And so that is step one. But then we are made a new creature in Christ. We are born again, and then we have to decide how we're going to live now that we are in your family. That's the challenge before us today. Father, we thank you that we can be here to be encouraged by your word, reminded of who we are and what's expected of us And that we may, at our better moments, rise to the challenge of what it means to be an heir of God. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.